Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. You're listening to Uncovered with Barat Sundarason and Jared Kimber on the 99.94 Network. We are going to talk about the World Cup final because it just happened and we just did a 10-minute chat beforehand, not realising <laughs> that we hadn't yet pressed record. Uh, and by that, I don't mean that we were confused. We just couldn't help but talk about this, what was going on. Um, I'm going to start with this, Barat. Uh, you've got a situation where Australia have Mitchell Stark, who from 2012 to whenever Jasper Brumra took over his t- title was probably the best white ball bowler on the planet. Yeah. He gets dropped midway through this tournament for Australia. And England win the tournament, and the player who gets the player of the tournament award is Sam Curran, who is short, not particularly fast, uh, not doesn't swing the ball as much as he used to. All these... Random little things. He doesn't have any of the major skill sets of Mitchell Stark as a fast bowler um, and was never really a good T20 bowler in anywhere he's bowled. He's been fine, but mm. doesn't always get through his overs. And he was made player of the tournament. He shouldn't be made player of the tournament. That's a different conversation for another day. Mm. Stupid, stupid award. But the point is that they turned him into a death bowler uh, who bowled short and at the body at, you know, sub Neil Wagner speeds mm. um, and made it successful. It feels like at this stage, England cricket can basically turn any talented player into someone who fits into their machine when needed in a way that I'm not sure I've ever seen another white ball machine be able to do. I think machine is just the most precise word, Jared. Uh, it, it feels automated. What England do in white ball cricket or have been doing since 2016 or 2015 after the Adelaide debacle or the two, uh, World Cup debacle. Uh, I, I wrote a piece about it yesterday and I called it uh, or I compared it to an, an Amazon warehouse, right? Where all these robots just are moving around, picking all these players and just putting them into places and putting them into roles that just suit them. Or more than suiting them, it suits this overall system of England's white ball cricket. I'm struggling with my voice today. Uh, I just drove through the night last uh, night to get to Adelaide in time for um, Alfie's first birthday. Alfie's our dog, um, uh, second dog, second puppy. Uh, So pardon me if I sound a little all over the place. Uh, but But that is... That is, and this, this, let's face it, it is a dynasty that they've built, right? Uh, we've seen a few dynasties in men's cricket over the years. 
Uh, uh, Tim Wigmore wrote a really good piece about it as well a few weeks ago, or no, actually a few days ago, I should say, uh, about, you know, the West Indies back in the 70s and 80s, the Australians uh, in the late 90s to the mid 2000s. Uh, and the Australians did it in, across two formats as well, tests and one-day cricket. Uh, and England are doing it across one-day cricket, 50-over cricket and T20 cricket. Uh, and you realize very early on that this is one dynasty which is based more, more on philosophy rather than personnel, where you look at the guys who who were in the playing eleven. I mean, how many of them would you call potentially great? Or how many of them would you think would end up being being great players? Josh Butler? Ben you're Stokes? talking about when you say great, you're not saying England great. You're saying all time great. All time great. Yeah. All time great. It's Butler in this side, I think, is the only player because Ben Stokes definitely isn't in T20 cricket, right? Uh, you know, no. you could argue that in other formats. Bairstow, Hales, Moeen, Rashid, all these other players, they've all got very high peaks, but they're not like automatic all time great. I mean, not all of them are even in the IPL, right? Like, yeah. you know, they're not at that top level consistently all the time. Yeah. And think about it like Sam Curran being player of the tournament kind of uh, puts that theory exactly where we want it to be as well. I mean, when Australia were dominating, uh, yeah, I mean, they had like players coming through all the time. But invariably, the guys who were winning them the big matches were Shane Warne, Glenn McGrath, Adam Gilchrist, Mark Waugh, uh, Steve Waugh, uh, across all formats. I mean, just look at all the World Cup finals, Ricky Ponting. Uh, and similarly for the West Indies as well. I mean, it was Clive Lloyd or Viv Richards or Gordon Greenwich or... Uh, but with England, every time, every tournament they play, it's it's someone new, uh, even if they don't end up as the player of the tournament. Um, uh, you said this just uh, before we pressed record. Liam Plunkett was that guy in 2019 uh, who, again, came back onto the scene, uh, became this death bowler that not many expected him to be, uh, just like Sam Curran has now. Of course, different stages of their respective careers. Uh, but... Again, it's it's basically because the system's been built that way. And it's a philosophy that's just not followed by the England men's team at the highest level. It's it's a philosophy that seems to be followed by England white ball cricket as a whole. Uh, right? You see and cover a lot more England domestic cricket or uh, the 100 and T20 Blast than I do. But it, it's the same, right? You, you're expected to play in a certain way. So if you fit, you fit in, you fit in. If you don't, you don't. And I think that's... One reason why I feel this dynasty potential, or at least has the potential, to outlast the other two, because it's not so dependent on on a bunch of really great players who all come together at one single time. Yeah, I get that. There are certain things you can't copy, right? Um, one is uh, that they they came from a generation where they all smacked the white ball around uh, in the Pro Forty in the T20, in the one-day cup. So they had all these different formats, uh, where, you know, small grounds in England, uh, you know, a lot of medium-fast, you know, right-arm bowlers to deal with, uh, a lot of throwdowns, all those sorts of things. I'm not sure yeah. not outside of perhaps India you could replicate that brilliantly. And even in India, it would be slightly different because of the, you know, the spin, uh, spin and some of the kinds of pitches. Yeah. The other thing is that other than South Africa in the late 90s, I don't know if there's ever been a team who's had this much all-round talent available to them. Yeah, true. So if you look true. at the T20, uh, Liam Livingston, Ben Stokes, Mo and Ellie can all bat in their top six. Um, and between them, minimum, you should be able to get six overs a game. 
out, yes. out of those yeah. guys in different formats, right? But but six overs a game. So straight away, you're a huge advantage over any other team. And then at the other end, they've got Sam Curran, Chris Wokes, Chris Jordan, even Adel Rashid. They had Liam Plunkett before. David Willey is available to them. Uh, maybe perhaps George Garten as well, you know, into the future. So they've got bowlers who can also hit quite well. And in some cases, in Sam Curran and Chris Wokes' case, probably even better than that, right? That yep. combination is really, really good. And it's probably better than the old South African combination that we're talking about, which was kind of, it meant they had to f fit a whole bunch of right arm seamers into the side um, because everyone was a right arm seam. <laughs> everyone was a right arm <laughs> yeah. seam all rounder, right? Um, so those, those are two things that, that you can't uh, replicate. And I do think that that is very interesting. Where I think it's very similar to the other two um, dynasties is that we, there probably hasn't been a proper book written about this specifically, yeah. but essentially the West Indies got good when people started paying them. Right. Yeah. And that's not a mistake. That's no. because, you know, at first, you know, they, they, they started to get good through the county system. So they started playing Lancashire league cricket. They were very good there. The county system paid them as well. Suddenly that meant they were playing in two different first class systems. Then Kerry Packer comes along. Right. And yeah. he says, not only am I going to pay you more than you've ever been paid before. And I think they were getting paid about 20,000 to $50,000. Like it was good, good money for late seventies, early eighties, uh, for some of those players. Not only was he paying them that he also said to them, you have to be fit. He got them a physio and everything else. They really committed to that, right? You'll yeah. have a look at the Australian dynasty, which probably starts, as you say, wow, it probably starts in the, in the mid-90s, but they don't really take over, mm. obviously, until the, the late 90s all the way through. They have the academy system. They have a professional uh, contract system, all those sorts of things. These are two things that those two teams are massively ahead of everyone else on. Yep. We're not saying that they don't have talent, but, you know, there's that old uh, Matthew Hayden story about, you know, when he went to India and he made all those runs and three years before he rang someone up at Cricket Australia and said, can I just go on a tour to India yeah. and like practice over there? That, that would have been unheard of for like, yeah. an, uh, you know, a fringe player to, to even think of making that phone call to someone at a cricket yeah. board, you know, before Australia had done that. And those sorts of things kept happening. This is a little bit different in that it does feel it's almost like what New Zealand did in a way, but, but with a much bigger talent pool yeah. with much, with much more money. And then with real laser focus from about what, three or four people. Yeah. I, I think that other teams could do this, but I'm not sure that it's as easily to replicate as academies and, um, mm. uh, and, uh, what was the other thing? Our contracts were, yeah. uh, or literally getting, getting a physio and sending your players around in franchise. Well, what was franchise cricket, Kerry Packer and County cricket back in the day, right? This is like much harder to replicate because you need a lot of money. You need a lot of yeah. people. You also need kind of everyone to buy in, as you said. Yes. Yeah. I, I, there's a part of me that goes, do you know what? A smart cricket board could do this, but there's also a part of me that would say, Barrett, that you and I have covered every cricket board and is there a cricket board out there that would make these decisions before a politician or a stakeholder or some random curator? Someone's like, no, we're, we're, this ball's going to exactly. bounce at knee height and spin sideways, no matter what <laughs> you guys say. <laughs> and, and no, no, you're absolutely right. Like it, it's that whole buying in that that has made England cricket in white ball cricket what they've become. Uh, because it, it doesn't involve just those running the sport or those playing the sport. It, it involves... Everyone, like the curators, you're right. I mean, about creating those kind of flat pitches like they did back in the day in 2016 and 17, uh, where they just started piling from the runs. 
and almost made it okay for uh, you as a batter to go out there play play your shots fail so what there's always someone else to pick it up which is actually goes against the grain of most cricketing philosophies right where you're like no 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 don't leave it for someone else finish it i'm not saying that uh, someone like jos butler is always thinking of um, adil rashid batting at number 11 when he's out there but that fearlessness comes from that and that's why it's so easy or seems so easy for them to even you know play without someone like mark wood and david malan in a world cup tournament i mean it's one thing not having besto and archer on the tour itself right mm-hmm. i mean obviously like india were missing jadeja and bumra but to have two guys who are playing very very key roles uh and then to lose them just before the semi final and final and find guys like chris jordan uh, and phil salt i mean he wasn't needed much but just what to have someone <laughs> exactly yeah I mean, what, what a player in those red shoes i mean to have the confidence to wear those beautiful bright red shoes in training and in a game in a world cup final when you're batting for the first time in what two months in a competitive mm. game uh there's so much to love about Phil Sodang and we can do a whole episode on him someday I'm sure but uh you know to just find these players and know exactly what is expected of them and know exactly what they're going to do uh is what makes uh the it's what brings that whole cerebral efficiency which I spoke about earlier uh to the fore uh and i'm not saying that the cricket that they play is not not exciting i mean it obviously is exciting but it's uh the way i put it in my face piece it's predictably entertaining like you kind of know what to expect uh which kind of and you know little things you pick up right jared like especially people like you and me who watch um way too much of cricket and have our binoculars always trained to our eyes like even uh, an adil rashid i think epitomizes england's white ball cricket right he was around back 2009 before 2015 before even owen morgan was a regular member of the australian uh, of the english side and it was quite sweet to see adil rashid at one point uh, just after they had won the final run all the way up to owen morgan and give him a bear hug from behind like owen morgan was taken aback he was just about to go live on camera on on sky uh, i think it was sky uh, but he was around as a 21 year old and it's funny i i came across this wick marks piece from 2009 when adil rashid uh, has played i think maybe one odi or two odis and it's uh, you know and the, the the narrative at that point like vic marks oh i love what a laugh uh writes about how oh england has still not got white ball cricket uh, the way they should they still are, have not found enough players to take the game by the scruff of its neck scruff of the neck and and win games uh tres i mean trescotic has tried it flintoff peterson and matt prior uh, do it uh, uh, try doing it but then don't do it often enough so this was the narrative back in 2009 uh when adil rashid had broken onto the scene and uh, vic mark speaks about how adil rashid could be the guy who you know could be that leg spinner who plays all formats but also could uh be someone who could be a bankable option and you fast forward 13 years and you see adil rashid these days i mean there's a reason why he's so undemonstrative on the pitch because it almost feels like every single one of the 24 balls he bowls is pre-programmed in his head mm. uh, and and you know i i remember this moment in the semi final beautiful spell i mean incredible spell people talk talk about shane warne in uh, 99 uh, adil rashid's spells in the semi final and final in my opinion if you put it into context almost on par i mean he turned the games around getting suryakumar yadav out in the semi final getting babar azam out and bowling a, a wicket maiden right after liam livingston had been hit for 16 runs i mean those are like world class overs uh, but the last ball he bowled in his 
quota against India. It was just, I mean, nothing really major happened of that ball. It was just a slightly short of length delivery that Virat Kohli just square drove to point, uh, deep point for a single. But just to see Adil Rashid's reaction, I mean, he was so disappointed with himself because the way he wanted it to play out, I just, I mean, he just missed the mark by by, by a little. And and that tells you like how uh, automated, I love that word, uh, England's white ball cricket is, which uh, is what makes them dominant. Uh, some might say it, it can be like in, a little too predictable, but so what? I mean, they're dominating and they're winning trophies. Yeah, um, algorithmic is the word I started using in 2017 or 2019, whenever mm. it was. Because, and it's not just that, they did it in test matches as well. In fact, of all the yeah, players who's maybe the most algorithmic that they have, it's probably Joe Root, who mm. literally, um, <coughs> who literally, when the, you know, the pitch starts to spin more, he bowls quicker. And when there's a left-hander on, he brings himself on. And he gets singles almost automatically to get himself off shot. And all that sort of stuff. But yeah. there's heaps, you know, heaps of their cricketers are like that. And they really do... They work with knowledge in a way that other teams haven't. Adil Rashid is another one of these players, and Liam, him and Liam Plunkett are almost the the poster kids for for this. Even though it's 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 all about the batting, those are really important because you've got that 2009 period. If you asked most people in English cricket, they would have told you he was a roller. He had a bad attitude. I heard that all the time. He would never be successful in international cricket. All these sorts of things, and what. Owen Morgan, I suppose, as a captain really was good at doing, was, was and this is something that you know with MS Dhoni, is just finding those micro skills that he needed yes. to fill a slot. And he, he managed to do that again and again. And that's, I think, what you're talking about with this entire team. It really is a team of people with micro skills, but you might have three micro skills and you might mm. be able to fit here, here, and here. It, weirdly enough, goes back probably even before Owen Morgan partly to the Mike Yardy era, right, mm. of England looking at these players in a different way to what everyone else um, does. Uh, we'll take a break here, though, and then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about, uh, about the England setup and why it's so successful. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. So England, this is T20 cricket. It's slightly different than one-day cricket. And they do play T20 cricket. They're not as brilliant in T20 as they are in one-day. I think one-day is that. Oh, Yes. You know, they're on a different level to everyone else. But T20 cricket, they're yeah. just slightly, I, I'd say I'd have them a tier above the other five uh, teams who all may, yeah. may have a weakness, which is hard to get over. But when you look at it, so we talk about them batting down to a number 11. Their number seven position actually faces less balls on average than what, they, what a T20 player would per match, right? And so what you're talking about really is this, they give their players this freedom to attack, which is great. But their players don't go out. <laughs> so they're attacking yeah. and they're scoring. And you see it in one day cricket as well. Yeah. Like I remember, you know, Owen Morgan and Joe Root at one stage, they were both scoring at more than a run of ball between overs 10 and 40 in one day cricket, but both averaging over 50 while doing it. Mm. Whereas 
there was a few other players like Indians were really good in that period as well. And I think Australia had some good players, but they had to, in order for those guys to be good, they had to score it five and five and a half runs at over. There's that um, real crossover there. And the thing that I just found just before we came on, I'll, I'll put it in something. Um, I'll probably be in a video soon, but I went through all the pro 40 data. Do you, do you, you, you probably heard pro 40 before. Have you ever like, do you really know what it is? Or is it just one of those things that people say and you nod along? Uh, uh, not along. Yeah. yeah. It's a- <laughs> so I I'll be very to- honest. I was lucky. I moved to the UK when it restarted and it's like, it's the old John player league sort of Mm. rehashed. Right. And it's had, I think it's had a few different titles over the years, but the, the idea was to give themselves this, you know, limited overs tournament. That was a little bit of fun. And for those who don't know, it was called pro 40 because it was 40 overs. Um, and it came what five, six, seven, eight years, whenever it was after uh, probably six or seven years, sorry, after the T20 revolution. Right. And they were looking for something else. Yeah, Yeah. And, and my first thought was, why would you have a 40-over competition when one-day cricket is played uh, over 50 overs? And eventually, that's what killed it. I think as much as anything yeah. else, that, that's what killed yeah. it. But I was looking through um, the, some of the players with the biggest seasons. And Cricket Archive had all the data. And, and I, I can't get all the balls faced, but I can get individual strike rates for seasons. Uh, so I looked up Butler, Hales, Roy, Milan, Stokes, Moanelli, Bairstow, Root, Morgan. Between them, they had scored 11,000 runs in Pro 40 cricket. In, and it was only 2009 to 2013, so five seasons, yeah. right? Yeah. And some of those players were young. Uh, you, Milan wasn't very good in the first couple of years. Ben Stokes had a couple of bad years. But still, between that lot, 11,000 yeah. runs. Uh, Butler had a year where he made 440 runs, an average of 55, and a strike rate of 153. Remember, this is 2013 and earlier, when this yes, wasn't even exactly. a thing, right? Yeah. Butler yeah. had another year where he averaged 75, a strike rate of 146. Owen Morgan averaged 87 with a strike rate of 147. Butler uh, averaged 137 one year with a strike rate of 133, right? There are 17, year, uh, 17 seasons between all those guys I just mentioned where they average over 30 with a strike rate over 100. And I think there's eight where it's over 50 and over 110 or something as well. Like, mm. it's just ridiculous. And so I, I, I think eventually what needs to happen is we need to sit all these guys down and talk about yes. what this was and what it wasn't. But I found this incredible scorecard. And, and this was just random because I was looking for the individual numbers. But like, you know, on Wikipedia one year, it said like the highest mm-hmm. score. This is 2011, Sussex versus uh, Worcester. Sussex made 399 for four in uh, 40 overs. 40 overs. Right? Uh, Ed Joyce made 120 of 74. Uh, Gatting made, not Mike Gatting, the other Gatting, uh, made 122 of 94. Lou Vincent, 71 of 43. Moen Ali opened up and he made 158 off 92. So a strike rate of 171. This is like, they were playing this in a different way. And you know how we talk sometimes about wind ball helping the West Indies become yeah, better yeah, hitters, yeah. right? Pro 40 was this incredible thing where you took 10 overs away and suddenly everyone in England's like, well, we're going to go way hard. And they yeah. obviously went way too hard. I found a great scorecard as well where, uh, Two teams were bowled out for 50-odd in one game, which I would love to have been at. Um, but clearly, you took that 10 overs away, and I would go to these games and just be like, these teams are going nuts. Like, it felt yeah. like a T20 game, 
but over yeah. 40 overs. But instead of being slogging, you still had to have batting skills. But what you couldn't yeah. do is knock the ball around because you took those 10 overs out and you couldn't play the, sh- you know, the sort of Shikadawan innings, right? You know, that, yeah, that yeah, sort yeah. of Kane Williamson type innings. You couldn't really play that in the Pro 40. Um, but you also couldn't play your T20 where you're just waiting to hit fours and sixes because eventually they're going to be able to do it. You had to be quite well-rounded as a player. It's a fin- it's not talked about a lot and England got rid of it and they got rid of it in 2013 and it's 2015, obviously, when the big boom happens. Yeah. But you look at these numbers and you're just like, how were they not better before? Like yeah. their talent was there. Then you have the other thing that we, we talked about before, which is, um, you know, in county cricket, uh, there had been, have you ever heard about how North Ants were good in T20? I do remember reading about it, yeah. Yeah. So North Ants basically went, look, we've got very little money. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we're never going to be Surrey or Yorkshire. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What do we do? If we just focus on one part of our game, uh, and they used a lot of money ball stuff and advanced stats, yeah, but essentially yeah, yeah. It re- what it really was is we're going to spend as much time preparing for white ball cricket as we do for red ball cricket. Mm. And they obviously did very well in T20 cricket over a short period of time. And everyone like me and Wigmore started talking about them. And if you look at what England did, right? England basically did a similar thing. They went, okay, so far we're spending about 15% of our time thinking about one day cricket yeah. and all this time thinking about test cricket. It, some of this is luck, you know, yeah, and some of, of it is, is planning. But the actual, you know... You and I, there are a lot of cricket teams in the world who have said things like, we're going to focus on white ball cricket. Remember New Mm. Zealand did that at one stage, right? They said, we're going to focus on white ball cricket. I don't think New Zealand put anywhere near the level of planning or professionalism or systems in place when they were trying to do that. And England said, we're going to plan for white ball cricket. And they literally did that to the detriment of their test side at times as well but you cannot uh fault the results when it comes to the white ball stuff and some of it was already there and they had to peel it back but you know they're still making players in in, you know better than they are as you said before there's a there's so many different layers to this that i find really interesting oh uh i mean look i i do remember them uh broadcasting the pro 40 and i think it was called different things at different stages if i'm not mistaken even during its limit (laughs) yeah (laughs) Hello. So, um, yeah, and it used to be fascinating. And I remember coming across quite a few of these guys for the first time while watching Pro 40. Uh, David Malan, for example, uh, and both David Malan and Josh Butler. I remember them making T20 hundreds very early on in the T20 blast, but also making hundreds in or at least big scores uh, in, in, in the Pro 40 or in the 40 over comp. Uh, and the 40 over comp, if you remember, funnily enough, came in for so much criticism uh, and some of these other pieces I read um, around Adil Rashid in 2009 actually speaks about it. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not sure about the Wickmarks piece, but there were some other pieces I read from um, notable England writers or English writers at that point saying, why are we playing 40 overs if the whole focus should be on the 2011-50 over World Cup? Um, and look, when they won in 2010, uh, this is the second time England are winning, right? But in, in 2010... You saw, like Michael Yardi is a great example. Uh, I think you saw them sort of flirt with that idea of having these really special Luke Wright, another one who played a lot more T20 cricket than one-day cricket from what I remember. Um, and uh, But still you had some of those players who are, will, I mean, are great, right? From an English context and from uh, a world cricket context. Kevin Peterson, 
uh, Stuart Broad, Graham Swan. I think all three would make the cut as great players for, I mean, great players of their era and maybe uh, Kevin Peterson of all time. Uh, but but you're, you're right. I mean, the philosophy was sort of put into place before the 2015 debacle. But the only thing missing was the commitment. And that's what mm. you've been uh, focusing on a lot in the last 10 or 15 minutes, Jared, is it's about taking the plunge, right? Indian cricket. I mean, it's a great example here. Indian cricket and T20 cricket, uh, uh, in T20, uh, the format. They've been flirting with breaking free and really embracing this fearless approach that they keep talking about. They mention it many times. But fearless approach in T20 cricket doesn't just mean going out there and playing a lot of shots. I mean, that's the most basic idea of fearless cricket. It's about who you pick, how you build that whole system, not just with your international team, but in the in you know in the whole uh, feeder system that creates those kind of players, I mean it's sort of there with the IPL, and I find the whole argument of oh India have not won a T20 World Cup after the IPL kind of really lame, as you know, like doesn't really con- those two don't connect. What did the play? Uh, what was it? Was it um, was a Macron and Gavaska said the other day? Oh, the players are getting paid too much, and it's like they're not. <laughs> That's not why they're failing. No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like Hardik, a, we just saw Hardik Pandya rebuild his body because of how much money he had available to him to yeah. be able to actually improve himself as a cricketer. Let's not talk about and and of all the players who are the flashiest when it comes to money, Hardik Pandya is like right up there, right? And and yet, you know, it's so yeah. I I look, it's the old Premier League thing, isn't it, as well? It's funny yeah. that the NBA players seem to do okay with it. <laughs> True, yeah. And look, Hardik Pandya, uh, you're right. I mean, he was, from all reports, I heard that he was traveling with his personal chef on this tour, which is a great thing, which tells you how much he's thinking about his cricket. And if he can afford it, why not, right? Like, yeah, I mean, it's a good thing that he wants to be so wary or aware of what goes into his system or goes what goes into his body, even while he's playing a World Cup. And which is, I mean, which I think also t- tells you that he's committed to the cause. Like, you know, he's taken mm-hmm. the plunge individually. But Indian cricket, Australian cricket for that matter, like they speak about you know, focusing on T20 cricket when a World Cup comes around. Or now already the talk is about 50 over cricket next year. But, you know, uh, are they just still flirting with uh, uh, being, you know, you can't be half-assed with these things. I think that's where England have just uh, taken white ball cricket to the next level by saying, and it's not that they're winning every game, right? You're right. right. They're a much better 50 over side than a T20 uh, uh, cricket side. And technically... They could well have been four times T20 World Cup champions by now. We, we they should have won in 2016, right? I mean, Carlos Brathwaite just had one of those nights, um, and Ben Stokes lost his nerve. They could well have won. Uh, I know I'm getting into the hips and butts, but uh, they were odds-on favorites to win last year as well. Yeah, you know, New Zealand. I mean, you could argue again. they were better last tournament than they were in this tournament. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it, it, even though they just have two titles to show for it at this stage they could well have been sitting on like five in the last five, uh, six or seven years, or at least four. So uh, that's that's the difference between what England have done and what these other countries uh, have to do. I mean, uh, if they want to catch up with England, which is to uh, not just create fearless cricketers, but to kind of marry into that fearless approach, which none of them have done so far. So I remember Australia deciding that they 
it must have been before 2019 World Cup, they decided that they would have to bat very similar to England. Mm. And Mitch Marsh came back into the side, maybe batting at five or six, wherever it was. Um, and, and there was this whole thing, go out there and smash it. I can't, I can't remember who was even the coach at that stage. Was Lang, had Langer taken over at that point? Um, it was that summer when England, yeah, the England yeah. players came out to Australia. So there was this whole thing. And, you know, talking to people around the camp, that was, that was what they kept telling me. And I kept saying, yeah, but you don't have anyone batting at number eight, right? Like, it, it's all well and good. And you see this with India as well. It's all well and good to tell these guys, go out there and smash it. Yeah. The first time they bowled out for 70, right? <laughs> You know, and, and things completely changed. England only had a couple of those, but they had so many wild successes because, you know, Mo would come in at seven or Chris Wokes would make a 50 or whatever that would be. Even if they only, even if those guys only come off every now and again, there's so much extra. So this whole idea of copying that thing, you have to copy so many different levels of it. Yeah. And I, and, and you look at the India team, and I'd never be forward enough to like send Raul Dravid uh, an email, but I remember, uh, I mean, I would send him an email, but not like, yeah. have you thought about doing this? Yeah. <laughs> Although I'm sure Raul's listening to our You might uh, get a podcast. gig, Jared. Like, yeah, I think uh, well, that's, I can totally that's why picture I you. Do it. I wouldn't want to yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they'd, they'd stop me doing podcasts. But, um, but yeah, I, like if you look at it, there is a way of constructing the Indian side and, and they've flirted with it a couple of times yes. where you could probably bat to number nine or 10. Yeah, yeah, right. absolutely. That's a huge risk to be able to do it. And then you have to do it for, you probably have to commit to that style for a long period of time, yeah. you know, and, and, and that, that's copying England's method. You don't have to do that. There might be another method out there that yeah, you yeah, could find sure. from your team, but there are more extreme things. And if you have a look, you know, probably the two, well, maybe the most extreme team would be South Africa. Right, mm. where they're literally like, we are giving up on the number seven um, batting position entirely. Yeah. Uh, I've actually done a podcast with Matt Roller that will come up after ours, in which I literally mm. go on and on about Wayne Parnell batting at number seven. So I'm not gonna, <laughs> I'm not gonna go too. But you know what I mean? They're literally, they're, yeah. So they're taking a big punt in that direction. Yeah. Right. And so far, it hasn't come off in two World Cups for them. Although they've actually won quite a few games um, at times in, in those World Cups. But if that's what you're going to do, and that's what you believe. You need to actually groom your entire structure around that, right? Which is, yeah. this is where we are right now. And I think, again, it seems like that is what England has done, whereas that's not really the case for anyone else. And it's it's hard um, to, especially, uh, uh, India is really, really interesting for me. I really want to do a big piece on their, their T20 side because they haven't been that bad that it's easy to rip it up and start again, mm. right? They actually... Yeah you look at those teams and you're just like, they should have done better. Right. And yeah. when, the, when you have that 2015 world cup, you're watching England going, they fundamentally don't understand how white ball cricket is yes. played. Right. And that yeah. was easy. Like for Owen Morgan, I remember being at the press conference with Owen Morgan where he was, he was frustrated when they beat Scotland and you could just see him go, this is shit. <laughs> we don't, you know, and they've won that game, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so I do think that if you're going to do that extreme thing, it really does need to be almost top to tail. Um, yeah. And uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a tricky maneuver, I think, for any other team to do it. And then you do need the actual people available. Um, and, and I'm not sure that anyone really has. I, it'd be great to go through uh, India and South Africa, the two teams. 
that in some ways I think have should have a brighter future in limited overs cricket than um, New Zealand and uh, well, I think Pakistan are quite good because of the bowlers. So we yeah. sort of keep them to one side. But you look at New Zealand and Australia, and you're like, there's a lot of aging players there. That doesn't seem to be absolute jets coming through. You know that there maybe that's, were that's... in other generations. The big bashes looking pretty dry. Um, you know, we you know New Zealand's a very much early to mid thirties team um, with a lot of their players now, right? And then you and then you you look across to South Africa and, and India and you go, this is the team where maybe yes. there's a whole new mess that we can try here. Um, but those things are really messy, and you need to fully commit in the way that England has done. And I'm not sure either of those teams are in the right place mentally or as cricket boards to be able to make those plunges. Yeah, I mean, you need to be okay with upsetting people, uh, upsetting the apple cart, and uh, uh, completely changing not just your approach, but your culture, if you want to go down that way, like England did, uh, right? And another dynasty or dynasty we didn't speak about is West Indies in T20 cricket. I know uh, our Caribbean cricket podcast guys will bury us if you don't mention them. Uh, <laughs> between say, I would say 2011 and 2016, like when they won those two trophies. But um, but that was a very different... Uh, even there, there was commitment to the cause where the big players were just allowed to go and do whatever they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. But come the World Cup, they all came together, even if a lot of them at many points didn't see eye to eye. They were still committed to a cause, which is what was lacking with this current West Indies side. And obviously, uh, in some... Uh, it's at some levels, again, you're talking about a lot of great players in that particular format coming together at the same point, unlike what we are seeing uh, yeah. seeing with England. Yeah. But, but, I mean, but, but the reason they couldn't replicate that is because that basically happened because those guys all went off and became a, a bit like what happened in the 80s, right? Yes. In the, in the late exactly. 70s. Those guys all went off and became professional when no one else was. And then by the time everyone else out caught up to them, the West Indies mm. had nothing to go to, right? There was... Yes. You know, and, and and we talk about great players and everything else, but you become great by being tested by playing for your, you know, playing for money and you exactly. know working on your game and working on your diet yeah. and working on your body and all those sorts of things. So it, it is, I I think you're right. You know, it, it, a lot of those other ones, either I, I do think someone can catch up to England, right? Yeah. But there's a couple of things that I think is worth saying. One is. As we go more and more to franchise cricket, is anyone else going to have the money mm. to catch up with what England is currently doing and the desire to do it? Yes. Right? And the second is India is the most obvious team to be able to rip themselves up and just build it back up from scratch. And you do look at the IPL and you go, that was more or less their best squad. You could quibble about one or two players. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's no five players that they would have brought into that squad that would have made them win that World Cup any more than what they had there, right? That's not the case of the 2015 England World Cup squad yeah, yeah, yeah. where you're yeah. like, where's Ben Stokes? Um, yeah. uh, <laughs> so so there are there are some differences there. But that's my, my, my the interesting thing about India is, will they ever be so bad at a tournament where you're just mm. like, all right, let's start again. And with South Africa, yes, theoretically they could do it, but there's the politics of the selection there. There's also the fact that will they even be able to keep their best players anymore as franchise stuff happens. And so England maybe are in a perfect environment where they might make enough money. They can keep still keep their international players happy enough to play for them because you still make a lot of money from playing for England, right? Like there's, there's a reason like why those guys aren't disappearing um, Mm -hmm. in higher numbers, like even KP, 
he tried to keep both jobs. He's not an idiot, right? <laughs> um, he did. And, and so, so I do think it's a really, really interesting one. So that, that's, the, that's the space race part of it for me, is whether England have just made a system that will keep going. Now, you and I, you know, I mean, they can't find anyone to bat in Red Bull cricket anymore. So with all mm. their money and all their skills uh, in, exactly. the, in the game that they loved for a long time, they haven't been able to find anything there. It could be slightly generational and all these things come together and the all-rounders, they're not going to keep finding these all-rounders. I, I refuse to believe they're going to keep finding all this many all-rounders. But I do think that it is a hard thing to replicate when everything about modern cricket is going in the direction it is and you've got this one team who's off on the side, perhaps planning and, and playing it in a slightly different way to everyone else. There's only one team I can compare um, this England white ball cricket team to. That's the Australian women's team. And the con I mean, you can say uh, there's a Matthew Mott uh, connection link between the two. And I mean, what, what a performance from Matthew Mott as coach, right? Two World Cups in the same year. Uh, uh, women's cricket, men's cricket, Australia, England. Uh, and of course, Matthew Mott inherited uh, this great culture that was set in place in England. But he played a huge role in creating that culture in Australia and Australian women's cricket. And um, like... You said there about the England men's team. Uh, I've heard so many people who've covered a lot of women's cricket saying, at some point, Australia will have to stop producing these incredible all-rounders. It's very similar, right? The Australian mm. women's team bat from literally 1 to 10 most times. Uh, and they just have players who can bowl... Uh, and you know, fill up the the other person's quota at any time. So there are so many who, I mean, uh, don't bowl their full quota or don't bowl at all, but still are useful with the bat. So I think uh, again, it it that took a lot of commitment and taking a, a plunge. Different circumstances, like you know, you're not competing with a lot of Test cricket there, for example. But again, like you said, I mean, there are so many people in England who are upset with how their Test teams going, but then there are also a lot of people who say. Okay, I mean, maybe we'll have to address it at some point. But for now, we are on top in white ball cricket. And like we said at the top of the show, this era has the potential to carry forward or carry on for quite a while uh, from now. And uh, yeah, unless other teams catch up, England should win a few more world titles. So the Australian women's team are further away from their opponents than I think the England yes, white ball men's sure. team is, right? However... BCCI could close that gap in five years if they ever spend yes. any money, right? England, ECB also could probably close that gap quite quickly. And you could probably do some really interesting stuff. In, well, New Zealand's already, you know, trying to um, pay their players at a similar wage. Yes. Um, you know, and, and you could probably do something very similar in South Africa very quickly. The, I'm not sure that's as easy to do in the men's game. Yeah, right, which is a really true. interesting thing. So what we're going to look back on this in about twenty years' time and just be like, Australia women won all those games because they paid their players. Mm. That's what you're supposed to do. Do <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, yeah. I, I think that's going to be slightly different to what we look back on for England. But either way, I think it's very uh, fascinating. All right, one last break, and then we'll come back. And I want to ask you about the fact that how confusing this is that this is England. All right, Barat. So, fine, we get it. They're very good. Um, I sent out a tweet the other day praising the team and I only got one negative comment. And I've been saying this for a long time. There's a Twitter thread I wrote in 2017 or 2018 where I was like, 
Guys, this is the most interesting cricket nation in the world. And you've got to stay with me on this because I know that's not what you're expecting to hear about England. Um, but essentially, you could see it coming <coughs> from a long way out that they were trying a lot of things and one or two things was going to stick. And obviously, mm. it really has. But we are both historians and we both know a lot about the history of the game. Uh, in the 1980s, England had the second best ODI record in the world. That was when no one was taking ODI cricket seriously yep. and they were a long way behind the West Indies. From the very moment that one day cricket gets taken seriously, England fall off a cliff. <laughs> they are <laughs> not even involved with limited overs cricket for the best part of 23 years. Yep. Outside of Adam Holyoke uh, winning a champions trophy that wasn't even a champions trophy in and, charger yes yeah and the t20 t10 tournament sorry t20 tournament in 2010 when really i'm not downplaying what those early t20 sides did but almost anything before 2012 yeah even 2012 is a bit you know uh, mm. people didn't really know what they were doing at, maybe outside the west indies but um it is incredible to think that when I did my history of test cricket book, which is really more mm. history of cricket book, you go all the way through and really from second world war on England is no longer the story of cricket. Yeah. They're not one of the dominant teams very often. They have a couple of good decades in their fifties and sixties, yeah, of course. Uh, but they're not, they're not pioneering very much at all. Um, New Zealand's become uh, the sort of the intellectual cricket power base right and india become the political power base australia become well australia continue to be the dominant team yeah, west yeah. indies have this incredible run sri lanka change t20 cricket and go from not a test nation to this pakistan have their bit like everyone's got this incredible yeah. moment or something happening and england cricket is just nowhere and even mm. when they get to number one in the world around what 2010 2011 whenever it was in in test cricket everyone just at the point where we're all like, wow, this is a good team. It just crumbles. Yes. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> South Africa, who doesn't get enough credit for how good they were for a long time. Yeah. They, they, that felt like a mini dynasty. Whereas in, in England, it felt like, oh, they're number, oh, oh it's gone. Well, that was done. <laughs> True. And, True. and, and so they just haven't been a relevant team. And for people like you and me who like to cover cricket all around the world and, you know, look at things that slightly differently. In some, in sometimes it's like, uh, you and I had a conversation off air recently about not giving a shit about ha Harry Brook. And the reason that we didn't is every young England player is like so overhyped. And it's like, <laughs> and then you see Ollie Pope once play spin and you're just like, yeah, I mean, he's really good. Don't get me wrong, but how's yeah. he going to go in Asia? Um, exactly. You know, and yeah. then you see Tom Wesley play a ball off his pads and everyone goes, yeah, that's the guy. And you're like, that's well, he's it. averaging 34 in first-class cricket. Uh, and don't get me started on James Vince. Hmm. Um, well, you see these guys come through over and over again that we have almost downplayed it. But it's so over the top and obvious now that it would be silly for even us who don't like bigging up the big three to ever downplay what England are currently doing. Because as you said, it is going towards a proper old school cricket dynasty at a, at a rate almost as quickly as these guys bat. Uh, and you missed out on Zimbabwe and Kenya. I think they were more exciting teams yeah. oh, <laughs> towards the end of the 90s. Yeah. Ireland and Afghanistan you could throw in. Do you know what I mean? Oh, like so many absolutely. teams had these little moments. Yes. And England was, and you were sitting there going, I don't know. 
uh, Adam Holyoke, those 14 games. <laughs> <laughs> or Neil Fairbrother. I mean, look, they, uh, Australia, and just justifiably so, always talk about Dean Jones having revolutionized 50-over cricket. Uh, but, I, I, okay, I, I'm not comparing Neil Fairbrother and Dean Jones. Of course not. But I think Neil Fairbrother, what, played three, four World Cups and... Uh, he got one-day cricket before everybody else in England uh, got one-day cricket. And what, he's got three... He's, isn't he the player manager for at least three of the players who won the World Cup this time? Oh, probably not. Mistaken. He's a player manager for half the England setup, isn't he? <laughs> I think he might be my manager at this point. Like, he's he's all over the shop. <laughs> yeah, so I'm glad that the Neil Fairbrother shadow still, like, you know, exists or this English uh, white ball dominance. But you're absolutely right. I mean, England were... Put it mildly boring, like for the longest time, right? Like there was nothing about their cricket which was exciting. They were like great, exciting players, of course. Kevin Peterson, Andrew Flintoff, uh, Alistair Cook, a great player, of course, and there's so many Even others. Even guys but- like Alex Stewart, Darren Goff, oh yeah, Andy Caddick. Um, th- there was, and, and they had the greatest stories too, like Hick and Ramprakash. Yeah. You know, even someone like Butch, who was like picked when he was too young, didn't know yeah, what yeah. batting was, had all this this random career. Like there was there was stories there, and they weren't as bad as we remember. Like no, if you no, no. if you go back and you know Emma John's written a book and and Butch did the documentary about it, and you go back and you go, it was a pretty good era of cricket where there was about seven or eight teams who were all of a similar standard, and maybe you know a yeah. couple of teams just slightly elevated. They weren't quite as bad as we remembered, but they were also absolutely nowhere near the conversation like if you if you were to go that cook and uh, sorry the goff and caddick partnership they were really good you still got and goffy would admit this they might have been the fifth best new ball partnership at best and it wasn't because they weren't good it's just that Wackar and Wasim and Donald yeah. and Pollock and Kirtley and courtney and you know <laughs> it, it, it was just everything was going on at the same time yeah i mean i'll put it this way i mean there was never a time, or at least when we were growing up as people and we were growing up as journalists, where uh, you could ever jump or you had a reason to jump on the English bandwagon, right? I think there were at different points, people uh, uh, jumped on the South African bandwagon during the late 90s, early 2000s, the New Zealand bandwagon around that time and at different stages in the last 20, 30 years, definitely the West Indies bandwagon. Uh, I mean, everybody just wanted India to fail unless they were India, but that's a different story altogether. The Pakistani bandwagon, the Sri Lankan bandwagon, but at no point um, since 1985 when I was born, have I, I do I remember a time when there were a bunch of people, non-English fans who were like, oh, wow, I really like what England yeah. are doing. I'm going to like, you know, jump on this bandwagon and support them. Till now, even now it's done pretty grudgingly. Uh, I see still see some commentary on social media where people are like, oh, they got lucky. Ben Stokes should have been out 10 times before he saw them home and all that. But I think England have finally become, you're right, a team which uh, as a neutral, you can really get excited about. E- even though you know, like I said earlier, you know what to expect. But even that is quite exciting. Yeah, I think, I mean... I remember when they got good and they went to number one in the world and they played South Africa in 2012 and I, and, and they just got really good and the English press hadn't even really got behind them. Do you know what I mean? Like the England press weren't like, Hey everyone, this is a team. And it was already clear at that stage. And I wrote a piece really early on in 2012 going, yeah, I think this team's already on the slide. Sadly, (laughs) I, I think this is going. But even if you think back to that team, that was the old, that was the Moneyball Test team, which was yeah. 
Trot, Strauss, Cook, grinding it out. You then had, to be fair, Bell, Peterson, Pryor, um, Flintoff, when, I suppose, well, actually, it was probably just beyond him, but, you know, yeah, that yeah. sort of period of those guys coming in and whacking it. But it And they, the bowlers always seen the bowl a little bit too short and a little bit too wide, whatever. Yeah. There was Even if you're a neutral and you're like, this is a really good team, I'm not sure you were like, oh, England is playing. Like, ne- yeah. like even if you look at Basball, right, which yeah. is, you know, we'll probably do 83 episodes on, right? <laughs> even if you look at Basball, you're like, I- I'm going to watch this. I still think they'll end up burning themselves um, to the ground mm. here, um, but I'm going to watch this. And this white ball team, as you said, it's much more predictable and much better, but there is an yeah. element of, like, if I, you know, you know, with football clubs or basketball teams or anything or rugby teams or whatever you pick your who you support between the age of like five and and nine or whatever it is i think yeah, that's yeah, the yeah. average age so if you don't just automatically pick your your, your parents team or your or mm. your big brother's team or your big sister's team um then you generally pick that team that you like which is why there's all these like indian kids whose favorite team was australia yeah right true. You know, yeah, and why all there were all those English kids whose favorite team was West Indies, right? Like yeah. th- that's how yeah. those things go. This is the first era in in the history of cricket where we're going to have a bunch of English fanboys from South Africa, from New Zealand, yeah. from Australia, from Sri Lanka, from wherever else, from India, because it's impossible to watch this team and not go. This is how it should be done. And that, for people like us, is so bizarre. If you're under the age of 25, you're just like, yeah, yeah they're a good team. What are you talking about? Exactly. Yeah. But if you're older than that, you are sitting there going, this is England. This is England. <laughs> this is not what it's supposed to be, which is also now the title of this show, because only because it's the last thing I said, and I'll remember it. <laughs> um, a, a great tournament. I'm sure you had a lot of fun. Uh, next week, we can, we, we'll, we'll move on to something else, but... Uh, why don't you go and have uh, uh, another sleep? You've done very well to make it through the show, by the way. And this is, this has been our longest uh, episode, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, for me to do it on two hours sleep after having driven through the night, and, and that's that's something about driving through the night in Australia, right? After a point, uh, and, I, and I've done it so many times now. Um, between eight and ten, it's just the road trains that you see, uh, or a couple of cars here and there, just locally going from one town to the other. Between eleven and one maybe a few road trains and then from one to five it's just you on the road there's nobody else uh so yeah it, it's quite an experience and i'm glad i survived it once again uh and yeah it, it was by far the best t20 world cup i've ever covered or seen or witnessed jared so uh i'm really excited about where the format's going uh at, at international level to see all these teams uh jump up from nowhere it's funny um yesterday you know how you listen to the to late night radio, right? When you're driving around Australia, there was a guy, I was surprised. Like, you know, it's one of those uh, 25 questions that you have to get right. There was a guy who called from Netherlands uh, for the quiz. I was shocked. And then the host asked him, oh, so um, uh, you must be really happy with the way your cricket team played in the T20 World Cup. And uh, he was like, uh, you know, I'm not, but all the cricket people in the Netherlands or the Dutch cricket fans were really, really happy. I didn't expect to hear that at 2 a.m., but it kind of remind. It was. It almost felt like that call happened just for my sake. It was like a reminder that this was a fantastic tournament. That result, of course, uh, was right up there with India-Pakistan for me uh, in terms of just the unpredictability and how it played out. Uh, but yeah, I mean, teams are getting closer. Uh, the emerging nations are have emerged. Mm-hmm if I may say so, more teams in two years' time. So 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be a tournament where there were so many highlights and so many different teams had highlights as well. But like we've discussed over the last 50 odd minutes, uh, I think the best team won and everybody else has to play catch up. Thanks for coming on. Go have a sleep and I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the 99.94 Network Cricket every day. Remember to download our app or just search for your favorite team at 99.94 where you find podcasts on Google or YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon and there are many other extras available there as well. There is a link to the show notes. The show is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. Barrett Sundaresan is my co-host. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great production team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapayi and Maida Akam producing podcasts and Makunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube account. Podcast Network.